Isaiah 49, 1-16 Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He polished me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due, what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am, an honor, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and for my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land, and to, re and to resign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in the darkness be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water, I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Amen. Well, again, welcome once more. Uh, it's good to have you. As we mentioned in the announcements, we, I did that, as I announced in the announcements, uh, <laughs> this is the second Sunday of Advent. And if you're not familiar with Advent, I didn't grow up participating in like liturgical seasons or festivities or traditions, so they're all a bit new to me. I'm learning them and learning to love them. So if you didn't grow up in liturgical places, Advent is distinct from Christmas in that Christmas is all about celebration, it is all about joy, it is about the arrival of Jesus into the world, the actual incarnation of God into the world, whereas Advent is about waiting. It is the season of anticipation, of longing, of aching, of looking, and of longing for God to arrive and enter the world. 
It precedes Christmas in this way as a season of preparation, as a season of orienting our hearts, as a season of entering into the story of Jesus' arrival and the story of Israel's longing and waiting so that when we get to Christmas, when we get to the celebration, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to say this is good news because we've attuned ourselves to the longing and the hoping and the anticipating that comes before. Advent is a season of hope, of waiting. And it's a moment for us to take all the things that can often come with seasons of waiting. Sometimes it's a moment of naming lament, which is what we named last week. Sometimes it's a season of difficulty, a season where we pride. And so we, in the anticipating and in the longing voice our lamentation that we need God to arrive because we look at the world around us and we like see that we need God to arrive. And so sometimes Advent is like that. It is about naming lament, naming injustice, naming our cries for God to move. And then sometimes Advent is a moment of like eagerly and excitingly waiting on the edge of our seats for God to move. We can hold both those emotions of lamenting and of hoping and of desiring God to move and of sitting on the edge of our seats and expecting Jesus. And all of it curates in us the song of come thou long expected Jesus. We've been waiting so long. We've been waiting in joy because we can't wait for what you're going to do or we've been waiting in need because we need you to move. Advent is where we give voice to that feeling. And it's also a season of curating our anticipation and our waiting, which is a weird thing to do in a modern world. We don't have very many things in this life that we are required to wait for. Waiting feels strange. Like, I get mad if it takes more than three days for a package to arrive. I don't know what it means to wait. And there's nothing wrong. There probably is a lot of things wrong with that, but that's not the point of this sermon. But what it does do to us, I think, is that it makes waiting and longing feel so strange and even alien to us. And so because we don't wait in this world very often, I think when we feel that feeling of waiting or longing, our impulse is to solve it quickly. To find like the the buy button on Amazon and be like, oh, I will solve this problem immediately. 24-hour shipping. Thank you. It's to satiate that kind of anticipation and that kind of longing within us. And what Advent is trying to show us and what it's trying to pull us into is the recognition that some things are worth waiting for. And there are some hungers and there are some desires and there are some longings that cannot be easily satiated no matter what Babylon or the empire or consumption, our own stories tell us. There are certain things that cannot be easily fulfilled. And so Advent calls us to actually curate our longing, not because it wants to crush us, not because it wants to sour the season, but because it actually wants us to hope in something bigger than what Jeff Bezos can provide. So Advent is about curating a deeper set of expectations and hopes and promises so that we can peer past trinkets and lesser things to hope for something bigger and bolder. To help us do that, 
we are looking at these ancient Advent songs from the life of Israel. These songs come from one of Israel's most difficult and challenging seasons. And they're naming a longing, a hope, an expectation, a need for God to move and arrive. And the reason that we're looking at them is that through Jesus, these songs are our own. We've been grafted into this story. This is our history now. And so we're invited to take these songs and make them our own. To name through the poetry and the lyrics our own expectations and our own longings. The song that we're looking at today comes in Isaiah chapter 49. It is what Amanda just read for us. And it is a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song about all the things that God is going to do on behalf of Israel. And there's probably imagery that you're familiar with or, or promises that, that resound to you as you heard the song. In verse 1 and 2, we hear about a servant who's been prepared to rescue Israel. This is Messiah, kingly language, very Advent incarnation language, appropriate for the season. In verse 5 and 6, you hear that this servant will restore Israel, will be a light to the Gentiles. Again, really beautiful Advent language. In verse 8 through 11, we get this amazing picture of God leading the people of Israel home. And it's like the mountains will be flattened, the roads will be opened, it'll be a clear path into a home that you belong to. It's beautiful, it's hopeful, it's rich, it's evocative, but then something very weird happens in verse 14. Israel's been hearing all this language about what God is going to do. So good, in fact, that the prophet looks at the world and says, hey, shout for joy. Sing a new song. All you earth burst into song because what God is doing is good. But then in verse 14, Israel responds to this invitation to sing and says, no. But Zion said, how can we sing? You have forsaken us. How can we sing? The Lord has forgotten me. I think it's, Israel, it's easy to criticize Israel in moments like this. I read one commentator this week who was like, Israel refuses to sing because they're just whining and complaining. Which is like, rude, dog. It's easy to read Israel. I think so often Israel becomes like the villain in our Old Testament stories. And in many ways for good reasons. They're obstinate. They're difficult. They don't listen to God. They always worship other idols. They're very familiar to us. And so it's easy to make them villains, you know. But if we remember from last week, we talked about the context of these songs. And Israel finds itself in exile. Life is very difficult for the people of God at this moment. Their homeland has been overcome by the nation of Babylon. Their walls were torn down, the city destroyed, the monarchy overthrown. And then their families and their communities were torn in half. 
some were taken into Babylon, but we always forget not everybody was taken into Babylon. A lot of people were left as refugees inside of Israel in a destroyed, destitute, desolate land to try to figure out how to scrape together a living after your infrastructure has been so plundered. They're left there, and then the leaders and the educated folks are taken into Babylon to be captives. And now they're in a foreign land, and they look around them, and they see the edifices of Babylon. They see the signs of another kingdom. They see the worship of other gods who, in many ways, if you're, about, if you're an Israelite, feels like they won. The thing you see around you isn't really encouraging, and it would not, I think very naturally, it would not evoke in you, let's praise Jesus. <laughs> the world does not look like Jesus won. It looks like Babylon did. Life is difficult and it is hard and I think it is only human, only natural for them to look at the surroundings around them and to say, these promises are nice but they just don't mean anything when we're here. It's nice to know that you're, you know, bringing a servant, but I don't know if you've looked around. We're not in Israel anymore, God. You got so busy singing that you forgot we were here suffering and dying. So we don't want to sing, God. We don't even know how to sing. You have forsaken us. You have forgotten us. We're here in a strange land, and these promises, they don't register in the same way they used to. I think it's just worth, for our own emotional sake this morning, to pause in this experience. I don't know what kind of faith tradition you come from, but there is kinds of Christian faith expressions that look at what Israel just did in this moment and criticize them as having too little faith. And so maybe you've come from a tradition that is like that. And when life gets difficult, your trained response is to be positive. Maybe you feel guilty if you feel lonely. Maybe you feel guilty if you feel forgotten. Maybe you feel guilty if you don't know how to praise. And I just want to tell you that what Israel does in this moment is a courageous act of faith. To name to God that you feel forgotten is a courageous, brave act of faith. The Psalms are littered with prayers of lament because God is big enough for us to name that we feel forgotten and because the Psalm book and the prayer book that God grants the people is just full of cries of rejection, of loneliness, and of isolation. And so whatever tradition you came from, if it made you feel shame for naming truth, has no place in the prayers of the psalms of God's people. God welcomes our cries of forgottenness, our cries of forsakenness. And I think what Israel does in this moment is a profound expression of faith. Sure, you can call it whining or complaining, but I think the Bible calls it praying. When we look at our surroundings and our situations, we're like, hey, this doesn't seem great. God, would you do something? That's a prayer. 
the same kind that we see Jesus offer when he's in the garden. If you could take this cup from me. We don't call him a whiner. Be rude. It is actually important that Israel names the experience they're having in this moment. It is easier in some ways to try to hide it or to shove it away. But hidden pain does not go away. Especially pain that is about being forgotten. We try to force this feeling of being forgotten away. It is in some ways like you are trying to forget yourself, which only compounds the pain. You begin to fracture under the weight of it. A handful of years ago, I was about to go on sabbatical, and I was experiencing some immense sadness. And I remember something that Heather told me, and I've never been able to forget it. She said, silence about your own sadness will start to feel like complicity. Maybe you're not the cause of your own sadness. Maybe you're not the one that caused this to happen in your own life. But if you don't say something, it doesn't go away. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it feel right. Instead, it starts to feel like all of a sudden you're, you're somehow caught up in it. So when Israel names that they feel forsaken, that they feel forgotten, it is a profound gesture of faith and hope that God might listen to them. That God might do something with the hope and the prayer and the needs and the wounds that they're holding up. That God might respond. Israel hears the song and says, we don't know how to sing, God. We feel forgotten. We feel forsaken. They take their pain, their woundedness, and their experience and they offer it back to God. We don't know where you are. We don't know what you're doing. This is how it feels. What does God do in response? This is one of those moments that I just love so much. It's like when you're reading the Bible, sometimes it's weird, let's just be honest, but every once in a while you get a moment, you're like, whoa. This is one of those moments. Israel says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Then God responds. And it is in such a different tone than everything that's come before in the song. Everything that's come before in the song, it's like triumph, it's joy, it's glory. It's like, you know, it's cool. But like, and that's great, but it, it totally shifts. All of a sudden, the tone shifts. I feel like the posture shifts, the approach shifts, the language shifts. And God says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, which is a crazy thing to imagine, though she may forget, I will not forget you. I could not forget you. I don't know how this strikes you or how you hear this, but there's an image that just keeps coming to my mind of the tone and the posture that I think is happening in this text. Now, do with this what you will, but the, the image that keeps coming to my mind is, is of a child learning to ride a bicycle. And it's like really fun for a second, right? Like you get on the bike, it's your first time, 
Training wheels are gone. Do they still do training wheels? Training wheels are gone. You've been pushed. You're like, your parent is there. They're celebrating. They're singing the song. They're pumped about you on the bike. You're moving. You're pumped. It's awesome. And then it's not awesome. And you're on the ground. And it hurts. And you've fallen kind of hard. What does a parent normally do? Normally, they stop singing, they stop celebrating, and they turn around and they come to the child. And there's a different posture that is assumed. Parents get low to the ground. They get near to a child who's fallen and is hurt. They look at wounds. They maybe kiss a wound. And they get near. I think that's what's happening in this moment. Israel has taken a fall. And this is true in so many ways. They're in Babylon because of a fall. They're in Babylon because of sin, because of rejection, because of abandonment, because they chose to trust other nations over God. So they've fallen in a spiritual kind of way. But it's also true emotionally. The beginning of the book of Isaiah, they're not in exile. So it's like this one narrative. We can just read it. In the beginning, they're having a great time. There's even a moment where a king opens the vaults and shows Babylon all the wealth of Israel, which is like a real foreshadow moment. Like, don't do it. They're riding high. And then we get to Isaiah 49, and they have fallen hard. And the reality of life has scuffed them. And their situation is before them. And they've hit the ground and the song doesn't feel very celebratory anymore. It doesn't feel like they can sing those joyous songs right now. It feels like something else has happened. And it's like they're looking around, holding up their wounds to God, and God comes near. When he sees that his people have fallen, God rushes to attend and like a mother, pulls them close. and begins to whisper over them a new song. I could not forget you. I could not forget you. Some of us today need to sit with that image for a moment. You've heard that God is a lot of things. But maybe you have not heard that God is like a good mother who wants to pull you close. It's not the only time God uses this language to describe God's self. Isaiah 66, God will say, I'm like a mother who wants to comfort. Jesus will describe himself like a mother who wants to gather the people together under his wings. Some of you need to contend with this image in your own life regarding your own shame, regarding your own stories, regarding your own falls, regarding the songs that you sing over yourself. We need to hear today that God will not, cannot forget us. That like a good mother, God moves close to pull us in, to be near, maybe even to kiss our wounds. This is the new song that God gives to Israel. It's quieter. It's more intimate. 
but it is one that whispers over us a word of truth that I think our souls very desperately need to hear, which is that we are not forgotten. We cannot be forgotten. We need to hear this for so many reasons. We need to hear this today. And I think one of the reasons that Israel needed to hear this is that they're still going to be waiting after this moment with God. This is the strange thing that Advent invites us to ponder and reflect on, is that God enters into our situation, God enters into the world and the incarnation and intimacy and vulnerability and quiet to give a new story, and yet the world doesn't immediately change. A kid has fallen on the ground, but like that doesn't mean they've immediately learned how to ride the bike. You know, like there's still a thing that's going to happen. And this song is full of beautiful promises, but Israel will still live in waiting. And even when those promises begin to get fulfilled, like they'll return home from exile, they'll enter into the promised land, they'll begin to rebuild the temple, the walls, like life will begin to unfold, they still well, they still spend a lot of time waiting. Babylon is conquered by Persia. Persia is conquered by Greece. Greece is conquered by Rome. And all the time, Israel is just this small subject of those warring empires. And so they still wait. And I think that is one reason God turns to them in this moment and says, I am like a mother who pulls you close. Because the truth is, much of our life will still feel like waiting. But God meets us in the waiting. And invites us into a different kind of intimacy. And I confess that as we talk about this, I think we're kind of moving into territory that feels a bit inherently mysterious to me. I was listening to a comedian uh, this week giving an interview on Colbert's show, and he was talking about how he had just endured something that was so difficult, and he'd come out with a book about it. And it happened like a couple years ago, and it was such a painful experience. But as he was telling the story, he used language that I thought was just so beautiful, especially because it was deeply spiritual, and he had said he wasn't a Christian. But he said, in the midst of these difficult experiences, it was like the veil had been pulled back in his life. And he was invited into something deep. And he said, he's like, I don't consider myself a person of faith, but he's like, the organ in me that produces faith has grown in this moment. I think that's true, that there is this kind of intimate work that begins to happen in the waiting. That God meets us when life is difficult. He meets us in the waiting, pulls us close, pulls the veil back, and invites us into something deeper. And it's, it's not always what we want. If I'm honest with you, I want God to be way more like the Kool-Aid man than a mother. <laughs> like I wave. Everybody immediately, the image is like, I just want God to be like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> And, and I will be honest with you, that would be very cool. And there's moments in the story where that happens. Like it's not, what I'm telling you now isn't that God is never the Kool-Aid man. 
There's moments. We read the book of Revelation. We're going to look at There's moments where God does seem to bust the walls of Babylon down. There is those moments, but in between, there's these seasons of waiting, of quiet. And I think in those seasons of our lives where things grow quiet, that is where it is easiest to start to feel like we have been forgotten. And yet it is in those moments where the invitation to something deeper and more intimate comes. Where we are invited close to our God who is like a mother, where we are invited into the communion of our God to know something that is difficult to know in the frenzy and frenetic of other moments in our life. Kind of intimate connection that begins to whisper over us a story that is hard to hear when things are busy. A story that you are not forgotten. There's this story in the Old Testament. It comes a little bit before the book of Isaiah. It's a story of Elijah. This is kind of a famous story. If you've grown up in the church, you may hear it. But Elijah is running for his life. Uh, Israel is like moving away from God at a pretty serious rate. They don't have a lot of place or tolerance for prophets. So Elijah is on the run. And he has this conversation with God where he's contending. He's naming to God the same thing that Israel has just named. You have forgotten me. You have forsaken me. He even uses the language, I'm the only one left, which is what he says to God. There's There's no one else, God. It's just me. I'm the only good guy. And God says, hold on a second. I'm going to meet you. I'm going to have an encounter with you. I'm going to be intimate with you. So go and wait for me in this mountainous place. And here's the story that comes out of it. It's really beautiful. God comes to Elijah and says this, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. This imagery shows up occasionally in the Old Testament. When Moses is feeling most tired, God says, wait on a mountain and I'm going to pass by. It's a promise of some kind of intimate presence. So Elijah goes, waits on the mountain. It says this, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. I don't know what Elijah's thinking at this moment. It's like, do I live in Florida? What is happening here? And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Come on. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Then Elijah heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave because that's the moment God was present. There are moments in life where I think it is easy to see and experience the work of God. Moments that feel like earthquakes, moments that feel like windstorms, moments that feel like the fire. 
Maybe it's because life is really good or because we're in a season of a particular moment where it's like, oh yeah, I can see, like God's doing a thing here. It's fun. This is the rejoice song. But then there are moments where it gets quiet. Where things slow down. Where the night seems to draw in. And in those moments is where it starts to feel like we have been forgotten. But the promise of Isaiah 49 is that when life gets quiet is when God begins to move close. Where God begins to move in intimate, motherly ways to whisper to us stories of belonging, stories of love, stories of memory. To remind us that no matter what this season might reveal about us, no matter what this season might tell us, God has not forgotten us. I think the question for us is, are we listening? Elijah goes and stands and listens for the whisper. Are we paying attention and anticipating God's voice in these moments? I think this is also why Advent becomes an important season, because it is the training ground for listening to the quiet voice. Like Mary who waits for a quiet voice, an intimate encounter. So much motherly language actually throughout the Advent that I think it invites us into something a bit different, a bit more close. And as we listen to God and are met by God in intimacy, I think something begins to happen in us, something that did not seem possible before. I think when God moves close and we listen to God's voice, we are able to hear the promises of rescue and renewal, to hear the song anew and afresh. When Isaiah 49 began to sing, Israel could not hear it. They couldn't register the voices that were coming. They could not register the promises that were being made to them. It just didn't make any sense. Like, we're here in this foreign land. Like, this doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't sound true. It's muffled by the songs of Babylon, by the songs of rejection, by the songs of our own internal shame there. They sing louder right now. But when Israel receives the intimate invitation, uh, they begin to hear the song anew. It's no longer just distant words of a distant God. No, no, no. God has gotten close enough that this song becomes the primary song, and it doesn't just become a generic song, it becomes Israel's song. These are promises spoken to them, from a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who loves, a God who has moved so close as to say, this is your song. 
so that Israel can begin to declare that the promises that have been made throughout this whole narrative, oh, those are my promises. These are a song about me. I've been formed in the womb by this God. I've been prepared by this God. I have been loved and sent by this God. These aren't just random songs. These are our songs. I think as they begin to hear the intimate voice that speaks to them, they see the song, they hear the song anew. And there's a daring kind of hope that emerges from intimacy. There is a daring and risking kind of hope or faith that emerges from intimate connections with God. After Elijah hears the whisper, he leaves the cave and he goes directly to confront his fears. And it may be the best example. After Mary has an intimate encounter with God, she begins to literally sing. That's the response that she has. God meets her, gives her this promise of the incarnation, and out of that intimate moment with God, she bursts into declarations of absolutely magnificent hope. This is what Mary says after God meets her. This is chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful attentive, present of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. It's worth continuing to read that song if it's been a while, because it is quite magnificent. And the hope that she is able to declare is wild. She's this like young, single girl who just found out she's pregnant. That's a crazy situation. And now all of a sudden she's singing about the overthrow of empires. What? But there is something daring and inspiring and empowering that comes from intimate encounters. Monsieur, we need this kind of encounter with God. especially as we enter into the season of Advent. Because Advent reminds us that we live in this weird tension as Christians. Israel was singing this song before the arrival of Jesus, and we have the benefit of singing it after the arrival of Jesus, where this song gets fulfilled in beautiful ways. God moves even closer. The writer of Hebrews says to become like a sibling, closer than a brother or a sister, so near us in that moment. And yet, we recognize that we still wait. God has arrived, God has moved, God has incarnated, God has come close to us, and yet we still recognize that we live in the tension of Jesus' first advent and the second That we live in the tension of a world that still feels like it has been forgotten.
Like Israel, we can look around us, look at our own lives, and say, man, it feels like we have been forgotten. That is the tension of this Advent moment that we are invited into. And to know an intimate encounter and to hear a song of a quiet whisper that says, you are not forgotten, what I think it enables us to do in the tension is to have the same kind of brave act of faith that Israel did and to look at our own lives and to look at the world around us and to name in the courage of our faith, sometimes it feels like we have been forgotten. It is an invitation to hold our wounds or the world's wounds up to God and say, God, we know that you are here and we know that you are working, but man, would you arrive? Would you do something about the world? Would you do something about my own life? Would you come into this world long expected Jesus? Like, I, I know you're moving, but God, man, it, would, you, would you get near? The invitation of this song and of this season is to look at the promises and to shout them back anew. Because we do believe that God is near and intimate, and yet we look and and recognize there is still a need for more. And that's not a lack of faith. It's not weakness. The very last line of our Bible is the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. The most profound act of faith we can do is say, God, here is our wounds. Here is the story. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and make this thing new. Missio, today, this Advent season is a moment for us to attend to the whisper and the quiet and the new story that God whispers over us. Not so that we can stop seeing need, but so that we, with the daring new kind of hope and faith, can declare our continual need for God to arrive. That's what we're going to do today as a community. In a moment, gather at this table, which is always a moment for us to practice our reception of Jesus, our need, our hope, our longing. But during the season of Advent, we're also doing another practice that has been consistent in a traditional part of the Advent season, which is candle lighting. And you'll notice that on this table, there is a bunch of candles that are unlit. Here, there is also the candles that are unlit. And traditionally during the season of Advent, we light a candle every Sunday of Advent in representation of different things. Last week, we lit the candle of hope. So we hope God is doing something. We hope that God is moving. We're anticipating and longing. And today, the candle represents So what I'd like to do is invite you, 
After I pray and as we begin to sing, I'd like to invite you to this table to break the bread, to take the cup, and also to light a candle. They're all unlit, so they're all available. We just want to make as many candles as available as possible. But to light a candle in faith. And that can look like whatever it needs to today. Israel, in faith, is declaring that we feel forgotten. That's a, oh, that's a perfect thing to name as you come to this table. I feel forgotten. God, I need God to move close like a mother to whisper a new song. But in Revelations, when that song is sung again, it's in the hope that the world will be made new. They just have this beautiful vision of the kingdom of God. And so the people are like, come, Lord Jesus, do this thing you've promised. Both are totally appropriate prayers of faith to bring to this moment. So in a moment, would you take time to come to the table with a prayer of faith? A courageous act of naming the need, the loneliness, the forgottenness, the hope, the expectation. And then would you continue to worship with us? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this moment. It's a chance for us to attune to the quiet yet intimate voice of you that says to us, we are not forgotten. A moment for us to hear that you cannot forget us, but instead come close and near. You hold our wounds in your hand and pull us as close as possible. And so God, would that make its way into us today? both as a word of comfort for us in this moment and also as a deep longing for the kind of work you're supposed to do in this world, that you promise to do in this world, to pull it close to you, to fill this place with your presence, to bring goodness and restoration and renewal to the whole thing. God, would that be the song we sing today? The song of incarnation, of a God who moves close, right now, and to come. In your name we pray. Amen.